Welcome once again to Cave to the Cross Apologetics, where we take stuff that you should be reading and read it with you, or <laughs> take books off the shelf, blow off the dust, and read with you what you should be reading, because you bought the book, and you don't want your wife or husband to get mad at you, and so uh, we are actually reading those books. We promised we'd get to it one day, so. <laughs> uh, we are covering uh, the uh, great Scott Christensen, who we've had on the show before, see all the links, and uh, he's asking the question, what about evil? And we're in the midst of our introduction to uh, the problem of evil. Yeah. And uh, we've seen that uh, that he's offered up a answer already. Yeah. In fact, what he did was he gave, he gave us several, you know, possible answers, several options with regard to the answer of the problem of evil. Why, why does God allow evil? Uh, he, he talked about the free will defense, right? Uh, God does it because he doesn't want us to be robots, right? Good. He, uh, he talked about the natural law defense. God has created an orderly world, and so this is the way the world works, and we can take advantage of that and cause evil, right? And so that's, that's what causes evil. He talked about the greater good theodicy. God allows evil for a greater good, mm-hmm. right? And he talked about the, the soul-making theodicy. That's uh, the idea that God allows evil so that he might improve our character, right? He might, he, he might uh, improve our soul, right? Uh, and then uh, he talks about the best of all possible worlds defense, that this is the best of all possible worlds that God so not has Not Mars, created. not Venus. That's right. Earth. Earth, Earth is the best the possible world, yeah. right? And, and, and then finally, he, uh, he talks about the divine judgment defense where God— um, punishes those who uh, who uh, does evil, and therefore that's an example to, to everyone else. And then what he did was he gave us his position, right? And what he, what he does in his position is kind of combine two of the ones that we've just seen, right? He combines the greater good theodicy with the best of all possible worlds defense, uh-huh. and he uses elements of both of those to kind of explain what his position is, right? And so, yeah, we'll, we'll look at here the rest of the book, what he <laughs> does, because he's going to lay out the whole rest of the book here, right? That's great. Yeah, and how he how he defends uh, this particular position that he takes. All the other books we've been covering, what the book has been about at the end. Yeah. Here he's done the great thing and That's given right. us what the book is at the beginning. So he says, here's what to look for. Here's a chapter-by-chapter summary that outlines the flow of the book's arguments. That's great. I love this. Chapter 2 considers the historical, religious, cultural, social, and personal context for why evil is such a problem. And this, it, it really is a really, really well put together chapter. I, I uh, when I was reading this, um, when I first got the book, I, I, I put out on Twitter that uh, that if if anything should be read of this book, I, I really think that that chapter does such a good job of showing uh, the care that uh, uh, that uh, Pastor Christensen um, has for for the the topic at hand. Yeah. So chapter three then explains uh, what evil is. Very good. Define our words. Always define our words. So what (laughs) evil is and how our conception of the moral character of God frames the problem. So defining evil and defining God. Great. There is no question that evil is a problem for both theists, but it's also a problem for atheists. It's a problem for everyone. Everyone has to deal with it or deny its existence. Very hard to do. But only biblical theism provides the preconditions for making sense of evil and so it is also a particularly potent problem, potent potables, uh, that a- atheism faces, yet without adequate resources to address it. Right. So, yeah, if atheists can say, oh, you, you know, that this proves that God doesn't exist. Well, now what? 
Yeah. Well, they have to explain it to. Yeah. Well, it's 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 just how the world works. Well, why do anything if 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 uh, if it's a product of nature? Then shouldn't we be as evil as possible or evil as I can? Shouldn't I uh, conquer the most? Shouldn't I uh, <laughs> inflict the most suffering so that people are afraid of me? You know, the the the, the problem works both ways, and right. so it's a problem uh, for both sides of the the, and, the, the yeah. issue. Right? And, and yeah. again, when we cover worldviews, as we have been for many many books. Uh, Everyone comes into the world uh, lo- looking at the world through a set of frames uh, that uh, that are preconditions, uh, presuppositions of of how they view the world, how they view evidence, how they look at things, and you know they're, they're not they're not um, uh, physically coming out and saying, "Oh, I'm I'm an atheist, so I'm adding materialism to this." So they might just assume materialism and and work out in their lives that you know that there's no such thing as a supernatural. And just have that assumption. So when they see, you know, the stars rearranging that say, um, hi, hi, Greg, uh, they're like, oh, well, I'm clearly being deceived right now, or uh, I took drugs or something like that. <laughs> so yeah. every worldview yeah. has to face uh, this issue. Right. He says in chapter four that uh, he sets forth the parameters for establishing a faithful defense or a theodicy. So he kind of, you know, lays out. Uh, what he has to do in order to solve the problem, right? The various parameters. Good. And then in chapters uh, five and six, he explores the most common solutions to the problem of evil that Christians have offered. Now we've seen a summary of those at the beginning, and he's going to go into detail, kind of do a deep dive into some of those uh, common solutions to the problem of evil in chapters right. five and six. So just, just because he picked some or picked his own doesn't mean that we're not going to revisit them. Right. He, he says that he's going to consider the strengths and the weaknesses of each of these solutions. And then he's going to uh, tell us where his theology, uh, theodicy rather, fits among all of the rest of these. Right. So that's that's chapters five and six. Right? Math teachers would love him. He's going to show his work. He's going to provide uh, what uh, each <laughs> each uh, symbol represents. This is uh, it's going to be great. It, uh, he's going to be well loved by uh, by your uh, your algebra math teacher. There. <laughs> uh, chapter seven uh, goes on to consider how our views of God's power and transcendent control over the course of history is essential to a proper theodicy. If we do not understand who God is, then we cannot make sense of how he interacts with evil in the world. Mm. Right? Mm. Chapter 8 uh, also considers the issues uh, introduced in chapter 7 and goes deeper. And how do uh, biblical writers portray evil? What roles does the sovereign God play as evil unfolds? So, again, we're getting into the Bible. That's exactly what he wanted to do. Um, not to say that uh, there's not uh, good reason to do f- uh, philosophy and that it's not saying that this won't cover philosophical points, but uh, getting a, 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 a grounding for the answer that we have is very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He says in chapter 9 that he wants to explore where moral responsibility lies when evil is committed. So this is a sticky wicked, right? In other words, uh, if uh, God allows evil, then why isn't God responsible? For right. It, right? Yep. right. So where is moral responsibility, right? Is it with us? Is it with God? How is God exonerated from being a culpable for, for evil, right? How do we not blame God, right? How does the Bible address this particular issue? If, right? if evil exists and God didn't create it, then there's something in the world that God didn't create. Yeah, so what yeah. do we do with that? And if evil exists... 
and God created, then it means that God isn't the, as good a God as, you know, as we thought he was. Sounds like right. good questions. To yeah. So he <laughs> wants to explore this issue. Moral responsibility. Who's responsible for evil? What is God's part in all of this? Can we exonerate God from uh, and, and make him not guilty for all the evil that we mm-hmm. see? Right. So that's chapter nine. Uh, And then he says that in chapters uh, 10 uh, through 13, he says, this is the heart of the book, right? Uh, So chapter 10 begins by looking at the motif of redemption through the history of storytelling. And so, again, you know, picking up his particular um, solution is, is heavy on redemption, Right, Uh because that brings glory to God, and so He's going to look at this, this motif of redemption, and uh, and see how that works with regard to this problem of evil. Right. So, launching uh, from kind of chapter ten through thirteen, but uh, covering eleven and twelve here, uh, chapter eleven sets forth the historical and narrative paradigm that Scripture provides for understanding this uh, ubiquitous story. It summarizes what uh, C.S. Lewis calls the true myth embodied in the divinely directed events of creation, fall, and redemption. All right, so the story has to do with creation, fall, and redemption. That's the story, right? This is the meta-myth, yeah. we might say, yeah. the true myth, right? The true uh, story of, of the universe, right? His story, right? His story. Yeah, right? I, won't, I won't mention a BK, BK, GKB Beale book uh, that, uh, <laughs> that I always seem to do, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it'll come in, in later episodes. Uh, chapter 12, then, uh, is the most important book uh, of, of the, cha- uh, the most important chapter of the book, I should say. It presents the case for the biblical the- theodicy that he calls the, the greater glory theodicy. So, right, the, so there's his proofs. There's yeah, his answer yeah. with all the reasons why he, th- he thinks uh, that's the case. Yeah, so he's going to give us in chapter 12, then. A defense of his particular defense mm-hmm. of the problem of evil, right? Yeah. He's going to explain that to us and why he thinks this is the best uh, way to deal with the problem of evil. So that's why he said these are the most important parts of the book. Okay. Chapter 13, then, he says he examines important episodes in the biblical canon that not only mirror the meta narrative of Scripture, but also highlight, uh, you know, this theodicy that he's going to present to us, this theodicy of redemption. Right. In particular, he says he's going to focus on the exodus of Israel from Egypt as a paradigm for God's redemptive action. So he's going to use that then to help us to see how his particular solution works. Right. And then this is interesting here. He says uh, within this particular chapter, uh, he's going to discuss and draw special attention to Romans 9 22 and 23. He says that this uh, perhaps is the most seminal passage in scripture that provides us with some propositional anchors to ground this theology, uh, theodicy rather, more um, directly. So this is kind of interesting. He says that this foundation of this theodicy, he calls it, um, uh, you know, propositional anchors, right? Um, are the grounds for this theodicy is found in Romans 9, uh, 22 through 23. So we know in Romans 9 that Paul begins to answer the question, what yeah. about the Jew, yeah. right? The what question is, yeah, God has made a bunch of problems to the Jews mm-hmm. and uh, pr- uh, promises rather to the Jews. And uh, now has he left those uh, the Jews out of the picture? And so Paul begins to discuss, you know, the issue of how God is going to deal with the Jews. He's, he's talked about 
about salvation in Christ, especially to anyone who believes, Gentiles and Jews. But God has made some promises to the Jews. So what is what's that? What's going to happen with that? Yeah. And so he begins to talk about that in chapter 9. And uh, Christensen says that in 9, 22 and 23, we're going to find some ways to ground his particular theodicy. So that should be really interesting to take a look at. Right. I, do, I do have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm right in line with him because I usually, for my quick uh, um, uh, biblical point, I always go, well, just read Romans 9. You'll, you'll get it. <laughs> Chapter 14 narrows the focus on the unique and paradoxical features of the incarnation and kenosis, that, that self-emptying of Christ that makes redemption so glorious. Uh, chapter 15 dives deeper still into the unique nature of Christ and his suffering. How can God, who is impassable, that is unable to suffer, enter the world as a suffering Savior? Mm. Very good question. Yeah. And how is this transcendent, impassable God able to sympathize with his suffering creatures and offer them comfort? Mm. Yeah. Uh, something that has been asked in church history. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on some historical points of view. That's why this this uh, uh, book is probably so lengthy is because you're trying to cover 2,000 years of church history <laughs> of people who uh, took uh, three months probably to write a book and then thought about it for the next four and a half years and then responded in another four and a half years. Uh, th- these people are, are, are probably the ones to, uh, to, to do it, and we should learn uh, well and be humble uh, yeah. in, in our nature. Of, so outside of the glossary and other uh, in, in things here, we have 471 pages yeah. of this yeah, of him attempting to do this, right? And there's probably stuff that he doesn't cover. No. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. Right? Right. <laughs> so we answer all your questions, except for the ones that you might have at the end. <laughs> so in chapter 16, there are, by the way, there are 17 chapters mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. this book, right? So in chapter 16, he says, this chapter expands the focus of the greater glory theodicy to uh, encompass the cosmic scope of redemption. God's glory and redemption includes not only the salvation of, you know, human beings, right, people uh, for himself, but the redemption of his whole creation from its corrupt state. Right. Right. And so that's what he wants to look at with regard to uh, chapter 16, the expanded focus of his greater glory theodicy. Mm-hmm. And then finally, in chapter 17, uh, he says this one explores one of the surprising results of the Bible's subversive model of redemption. Right. So instead of encouraging, you know, conventional power to defeat evil, Christ has already done that. Right. It encourages unconventional displays of the transformative grace by which one has been rescued from sin and judgment. This means extending mercy and compassion toward victims of evil, but also bearing up as a victim under the merciful hand of God and treating the perpetrators of evil with mercy. Mm -hmm. Right? So that God as we see in scripture uh, many times, kind of flips the script here, right? It's not just about us getting even and vengeance and, you know, and that sort of thing. But Jesus says we're to love our enemies, right? And we're to do good uh, towards them and that right. sort of thing. So here's a, a flipping of the of the script. It's not how, in general, mankind would perceive how we should uh, act toward folks who do evil toward us. Right. right? right. If, if you're uh, um, still with us today and you're learning about Western uh, civilization and the rise of uh, probably one of the most influential societies of the Western society, uh, you'll see uh, kind of nuggets of this, of, of 
Why not? Uh, why, why not um, uh, whip people until they're unable to walk and their their legs fall off? Well, th- <laughs> that seems like cruel and unusual punishment. Whoa, 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 you can't use American language. Mm-mm, not American language. That was taken from these concepts and put into kind of uh, American codification, but also the greater uh, uh, Western world and even before American was formed. So you'll see if, if you're a student of history, if you're going to be looking at uh, uh, the, the work of the church in history, you'll see these kind of um, um, biblical points of view meted out. And we say, oh, they're, they're only secular now. These are secular ideas, kind of like marriage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, except for God initiating marriage and being the person that defines marriage. Sure, marriage is secular because he gave it to all mankind. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess you could take it. And you, you receive some benefit from not having cruel and unusual punishment or uh, needing proof in order to substantiate charges, not depriving you of your liberty. All these things, we, we, we kind of go, oh, well, this is the, the American spirit at the heart, the heart and th- this shows us that we're a Christian nation. Uh, other way around. That's right. Other These way are around. Christians' concepts that we've gathered as as our nation, yeah, right? Right. right. Nation and and not gathered. just and not just here, but in other parts of the world as as, as well. Yeah. So that that's the the, the neat aspect of, of learning about this. <laughs> Light pouring out of darkness is is how he uh, concludes here this uh, this introduction, and he says that uh, how are we to interpret a world where evil, pain, and suffering permeate the ground that we stand on literally it changed the world mm-hmm. and the air that we breathe can we make sense of a good a wise and powerful god in such a world one that christians uh, uh put forth can christianity offer a rational and biblical defense of the god it offers as the only hope for humanity in the crisis we faith or are we kind of out of luck and uh you know it was a good good ride while it lasted but there's <laughs> just too much evil in the world uh no one's experienced evil the, the way that we have Maybe maybe a little different. If one penetrates the black core of even the most horrendous episode of the crisis, we find something surprising, he says. Within the core, we inevitably find a hope that brightly emerges and illuminates our understanding of God's powerful redemptive work, a bold plan that transcends the pain and overcomes the crisis. And almost something that you would hope to see if God is all-powerful, all-good, all-just, and there's evil in the world. Yeah, he says the Apostle Paul draws on a light darkness metaphor in Second Corinthians uh, four six. Uh, he says there that uh, for God who said, "Let light shine out of darkness," has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the image of light shining out of darkness. Right, light shining out of darkness alludes to the creation account, which begins as an unlit, watery world. Right in Genesis chapter one, verses two and three, and suddenly out of the darkness pours forth a mysterious light. So this image, he says, is uh, is subversive. We don't usually think of light shining out of darkness. We usually think of light shining into darkness. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Not going to make a Star Trek reference, but there's a Babylon Five reference, which is a darker version of Star Trek, where the the opening says that uh, the this this space station that's kind of its last of its kind, that's offering a hope for humanity aliens to get together and live. It's a shiny beacon in space, all alone in the dark. The Babylon Project was our last, best hope for peace. A self-contained world five miles long, located in neutral territory. A place of commerce and diplomacy for a quarter of a million humans and aliens. 
a shining beacon in space, all alone in the night. It was the dawn of the third age of mankind, the year the Great War came upon us all. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2259. The name of the place is Babylon 5. It's this thing that in, in the vastness, emptiness of space, they, they come together and there's hope, there's light that emanates from it, even though there's a, a lot of intrigue and pain and suffering that happen. There's the, the, it's the, the, the best hope that they have for, for the story. Wow. So, wow. so again, taking the, the meta uh, myth storytelling and applying it to things that still touch us today because Babylon 5 is great. Five seasons, you should check it out <laughs> after Star Trek, uh, at least uh, the first generation and uh, Deep Space Nine. So it's kind of like Deep Space Nine. But a little bit darker. So wow, not not to. I, I had to get yeah. one sci-fi. Reference. <laughs> so this is a tremendous <clears throat> metaphor, right? This here is we have darkness. That's the evil, right, or whatever. Not in Genesis, but what we're talking about in terms of the context that we're talking right. about. And out of this darkness, light shines, right? So God again uses this, right, for good. That's the basic idea. I think right. is what He's getting at yeah. here, right? Adam and Eve. Oh, well, Adam sins. Uh, the world creation falls oh god just should wipe it all away start over good try uh you know it's it's kind of the the greek story you know you you made the titans and they were a bit too powerful so you make the the second generation uh no not quite right send them to you know be outcast oh man make, make them with clay make, make them a little weak <laughs> make them able to be strong uh embody him with uh, uh, uh certain demigods that can move around the world uh, th- that's how you do it, right? <laughs> yeah. Just, just kind of recreate. No, that's that's not what happens. God, God has a purpose. If 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 we understand who God is, then He's not surprising. He's not surprised. And why didn't He start over again? If if He if He if He made it from nothing, He can uncreate it mm-hmm. all again and start over again. Mm-hmm. And He didn't have to tell us about that first story, right? That's right. He could just yeah. say, "Oh well, it was it was all great. It's always been great. Nothing to see here. <laughs> yeah, <it's>, uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's sweep this under the rug." No, it 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 starts. It goes. He continues. Why? Mm. Yeah. So he goes on to say then uh, in his conclusion that yet uh, the metaphor aptly describes the work of redemption. We are not considered to expect good to emerge out of the murky mass of evil, but God designed evil so that something remarkably white and wonderful would emanate from its black depths. Again, that contrast. The pages that follow in his book, will attempt to highlight the wonder of this divine light pouring out of darkness. In the end, I hope we will see that there is really is no problem of evil, only an unfathomably glorious God whose wise and wonderful ways uh, should elicit our astonishment and our adoration. And again, it's it's a, a story that um, God uses to turn our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. He makes us, uh, 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 he uh, pulls us from being uh, sons and daughters of the devil, of doing uh, nothing but evil, and he adopts us and mm-hmm. changes us, and and it's him that directs those things. So out of the darkness comes the light. Yeah. And notice when he says that there's really no problem of evil here. What he's he's not getting rid of evil. Right. right. He understands that. He's getting rid of the problem. The problem. <laughs> yeah. right. Right. God the gets problem. rid of the problem, yeah. and then we just report it. Yeah. <laughs> So again, uh, hopefully, uh, this uh, the, you know a little bit shorter, uh, a little bit more, just a, a, an overview. But it's an overview at the beginning rather than the end. Uh, so hopefully, this kind of wet, wet your whistle, uh, gives you some intrigue, it shows you where you might want to ask your questions, and also again, uh, uh, key terms at the back, study questions, further reading, 
notes at the bottom for the footnotes where they're supposed to be. Uh, thank you, authors. <laughs> thank you, publishers, uh, uh, whoever you might be. Um, and uh, um, continue to uh, to kind of uh, figure out and root out uh, the yeah. the uh, what about evil? That's right. Scott get get the book. It's a it's a, it's a, it's massive, but it's it's good. He does. There's a, good a digital job one too. Yeah. It's yeah. It'll be massively. Uh, two, right. two, two megs more in, in your Kindle <laughs> or, or, or uh, digital device. So uh, join us next time and uh, we'll cover uh, chapter one. We'll see you next time.